Welcome to Calavista Conversations. If you're responsible for delivering software on time and on budget, or at least wish someone were, then this podcast might be for you. Some two-thirds of software projects don't deliver as promised. If you want to be in the successful minority, if you believe that you studied computer science and not computer arts, then join us as we talk about best practices and how people have tuned their development processes for success. And maybe we'll take a look at some total failures and try to understand how they went wrong. And hopefully we can all avoid falling into that basket of the two-thirds majority. So welcome. And now here's your host, Sloan Foster. Hello, and welcome to Calavista Conversations. Today, we have experts in outsourcing, Russ Finney, principal, ITM Web, and co-founder of Calavista, Lawrence Waugh. Russ Finney is an advisory partner and researcher currently serving clients through both the ITM Web Group and the Stratimation Network. He also assists startup communities all over the world through various entrepreneur programs of the Tech Ranch. He's a former CIO, and in 2016, Russ was named by the Apollo Research as one of the top five most highly followed U.S. CIO influencers through social media. He can be found at Russ Finney on Twitter. He began his career working with Ernst & Young. Lawrence graduated from MIT with degrees in aerospace and astronautic engineering and humanities before spending seven years as a U.S. Navy carrier pilot. After leaving the Navy, he returned to graduate school, earning his master's degree in computer science from Stanford University. Prior to Calavista, Lawrence spent seven years at Trilogy Software, working with various enterprise software companies in development and consulting roles, ranging from individual contributor to vice president of engineering. Lawrence and his business partner, Sandeep Gupta, created Calavista in 2001, started as a bootstrap company out of a shared vision and helping companies improve the quality of their software delivery, been doing so for the past 16 years. Welcome to the show, Russ and Lawrence. Thank you. Thanks, Sam. So I thought today we'd start with the state of outsourcing. A lot of companies are looking to outsource as a solution and um, some kind of where are we, where have we been, and, and where are we going? It's a great question. When we started Calavista... 16 years ago, outsourcing was, I'm not going to say it was new, but it was not ubiquitous in the way that it is now. Often we had to convince our customers that outsourcing was something that was actually even a viable alternative for them as opposed to something that that they just kind of had to do. Um, I think we've come um, to a much more mature place in the, in the industry where um, people see outsourcing as a really practical matter. And it, it's a business decision as opposed to a um, sort of a bet the, bet the company decision. I agree. So, Sloan, we did some research, and I'm going to talk a little bit from um, some research that we did about three years ago. And in that research, we were looking across a wide variety of companies. We had 500 uh, that participated in the research project. And some of the uh, participants were very large companies, uh, one of the largest automakers, uh, one of the largest food and beverage providers, uh, several big uh, technology firms. Uh, also healthcare, and out of that group, uh, we surveyed 500, and then we did uh, deep dives in 20 of those companies. And primarily, we were looking at what are you doing uh, around outsourcing best practices, and then in conjunction with that, how about uh, virtual teams and optimizing virtual team experiences so that we could create a guideline for uh, companies that are thinking about doing outsourcing, uh, what are the lessons learned from these organizations that have embraced it, and then especially if you're working with people that are not within the four walls of your building, they're out there potentially on the other side of the planet, 
what are the best practices in making that work, function, and be optimized uh, to take advantage of it? So I'll, I'll talk a little bit um, with you as we go along here and uh, let you know what some of the things that we found during that study. Excellent. So where are we now? Do they outsource? Do they not outsource? <laughs> well, I agree Why with Florence. Do I don't outsource? want to repeat too much of what he just said. I think it's uh, very commonly accepted in uh, today's businesses uh, to work with partners. Uh, the big enabler of that really has been the technology that we've built over the last 20 years, right? Mm-hmm. So we didn't have the ability to work with a team that was sitting in uh, Bangalore, India, Uh, without video conferencing and good internet connectivity and the ability to share our coding and also be able to uh, collaborate and uh, good tools. Uh, All that exists today. All that is uh, enablers for us to be able to work together almost like we're in the same building. So I think that's that's been the key. But following up on that, uh, doing the best practices around those tools and technologies and it's still a human endeavor, right? So the way that you project Which manage means it has challenges. That's right. <laughs> so the way that you project management, uh, project manage that, the way that you interact, the way that you plan, it's got to be carefully thought out to be successful. So yeah, I think that um, you know we've gone from there are a couple things that could be outsourced. Perhaps you know your payroll. You know, back in the '80s, that was a big thing. Is well, we have a company doing our payroll; we're not doing it ourselves. To now, there are very few things that companies will not consider outsourcing. You know, all the way to what is you know once considered you know purely creative content in terms of you know marketing or or um, you know uh, strategy and things like that, where where people are actually willing to uh, accept the fact that there may be people who you know do this for a living who are really expert at that one thing, and those are the people you want to get doing that thing for you. So what would be some circumstances where outsourcing, you just named a few, where today, if someone's looking at outsourcing, where do you think they should look and assess what would be the best thing to outsource? Well, um, it kind of goes to there's a lot of reasons to outsource. One is if you have a skills gap, that is, um, and we'll just, you know, I could talk about software development, but let's look at payroll. So, you know, if... (laughs) You have to hire someone. You, you can go to jail if you get your company taxes wrong. And so you want to get that right. And so you either hire someone who has spent a lot of time getting it right or you outsource that to a group of people who have spent a lot of time getting that right. So if there are mm-hmm. things that are very important to you to get right, um, that's certainly something to, to outsource if you are not sure that you have that, that skill set uh, easily available in-house. Other reasons, of course, are to save money or to distribute risk or you know, other, other things like that. Um, so there are all sorts of different reasons to outsource that apply to different areas of your business. So Sloan, I'm going to talk a little bit in the context of um, IT departments, uh, because most of our study focused on the IT function in these companies uh, across not only the technology side of it, but also the application development side and where they were utilizing uh, service providers that may have been in their own city, but again, they could be nearshore or offshore. And so we did, we did ask this question, where, where are you um, employing outsourced resources? And uh, for now, let me just talk about the system's development life cycle. So if you think about that upfront on the planning and the analysis side of it, it's very tough for an outsourced group to have the insight to be able to do the planning and, and analysis. So generally, 
those companies were using their inside the house resources, or if they're product developers, uh, like right now we're sitting in Agilize and we're surrounded by product developers here in Austin, Texas. Uh, same thing, they've got to be able to think through, design and architect uh, whatever it is that they're going to build. So that tended to be a small percentage. So maybe 14 to 22% actually would use an outsourced resource for something like that. The, the wide majority were using their own resources. As it got more into a design, uh, it, it jumped up to about a third uh, would use some sort of an outsource uh, resource to help. But then in the building and testing, uh, that's when it got really heavy with the companies that we were um, surveying. So 86%. Now, that's not across every single project, but 86% said that they would use outsourced resources for building something. So coding, working in a framework, uh, configuring. And then uh, with testing, it dropped down just a little bit, 75%. Drops way down in deployment but then it goes way back up to uh, 70% on maintenance. Sure. So. I, I think that um, one of the things that um, is most commonly uh, seen as a benefit is the ability to leverage expertise that is difficult to find. So, for instance, we had a, um, a prospect approach us about they wanted to migrate a bunch of their um, applications off to Microsoft's Azure Cloud and weren't really sure how to go about starting to do that. Well, we'd done that before. So rather than – and and <laughs> – and there are some pitfalls. And so we were able to sit down with them actually in sort of a formal setting and go through, you know, a dozen or more managed services that, that the cloud provides and say, all right, so here's the problems that we've run into when we do this. You, you think that this is going to work this way, but it's not. You need to make sure that you've done this. These are things that you only learn by experience. And so a good example is, is that sort of thing where a company either has to hire someone who has done this before or several people who have done these things before. And in the case of, you know, a dozen or two dozen managed services, has done all of them, or you know, three or four people who together have done this, or you go find a provider who, as a you know, collectively has done that and can advise you. Again, the the same way you you know hire a tax professional because they've done so many tax returns, they know the answer to the questions that are are difficult to find. So, um, very often, um, one of the best things to outsource is is something that is um, complicated, but not necessarily core to your business. That is getting the um, whether the uh, my data lives in Azure or lives in AWS or lives on my server may not be fundamentally important to my business as a as a whole. In other words, it's not what my business. Is, but I may be an accounting firm, or in this case, it's a bank. Um, they don't really care about the software technology; they just want it to support them. Totally agree. So, what to that point? What are some overall best practices for getting the most from your external team, especially around agile processes? Good question. So. We uncovered about 10 factors, and I'm not going to go through all 10 right now, but as we go through the conversation, <laughs> we we'll probably find our, we'll find our way through those. But uh, a couple of things really stood out, and we created a diagram, which is a framework of this best practice for doing outsourcing and also doing uh, uh, virtual teams and being successful in virtual teams. Can and that be found on your Twitter feed? That can be found on my Twitter feed at... R Finney, R-F-I-N-N-E-Y, okay. you'll find that diagram. But it's um, the the real foundational at the top and the bottom of the diagram, two key uh, components. One was what you choose to apply outsourcing resources to is very important. So the projects that you choose, uh, the locations, 
and also the aptitudes of the team, uh, internal and external, on being able to do this in a virtual outsource way. So not every single uh, system, project, uh, infrastructure, or even managed service uh, will work well in an outsource setting. So really, you're trying to work your way through to find the ones that where it feels like it's going to be a fit. So that was number one uh, from the companies that we talked with. You've really got to be selective on what you're going to apply this to and make sure the teams that are going to participate uh, have an aptitude and a willingness to, to, to be working in that mode. I'll stop there for a minute if you have a comment, Lawrence. Um, yeah, so, you know, f- deciding what uh, areas to outsource, uh, from my point of view, it's, well, what do you need the help with the most? There's, there are ways to, um, to outsource most of the things that you're going to want to consider outsourcing. It's, I do agree that sometimes um, you need to make sure that uh, the team, you, well, no, always you need to make sure that the team you've chosen is appropriate. Uh, and the way you do that, uh, in my experience, is you actually treat them like you treat any other employee. Um, you should not think, oh, well, you know, I'm going to um, go outsource, so let me just go online and find the cheapest one or the closest one or the one that whose name I like the most. Or right, You wouldn't do that when, when you're hiring an employee, and this is arguably you're hiring a bunch of employees. Mm-hmm. So you want to make sure that you're kind of doing your due diligence. For Calavista, you know, we, we actually – don't work with individuals. We only work with uh, entities, so, so organizations that we we have worked with in, in most cases for over a decade now. But so when we go bring on a new partner company uh, to work with us, we'll spend a ton of time on that. We'll go, we'll fly to you know whatever country they're in, whether it's in Eastern Europe or South America or wherever. Uh, we'll spend time with them. We'll look at their development processes. We'll meet their people. We'll interview their people. And on any project. We will interview those people um, pretty heavily. That is, you know, resume screens and face-to-face via video conference uh, to really make sure that that they are people that we would want on our project, just like you would do with an employee. So, I think that one mistake that people make is thinking that hiring an outsourced, well, in my case, you know, development group might be like hiring someone to cut my lawn, which is it doesn't really matter as long as they sort of know what they're doing. It'll it'll be okay. And that's, that's not really the case. You need to have an organization who's not only very competent and more competent in, arguably than you might need for, you know, for a local hire because they're not going to be local. So they have to sort of step it up a little bit more. But not only do they have to be competent, but they have to fit in with your organization's structure and they have to be able to work well in your environment. I've just uh, That kind of leads into number two, of best practices that we uncovered. And it's exactly what Lawrence is saying. The way that they expressed it is building trusted relationships. So it's not just utilizing these resources based on resumes. Of course, you want to qualify who you're working with. I think it's also a best practice to try to, if you've got somebody who's really uncovering and understanding your business in depth, you want to incentivize them to stick around and and stay your partner and and also make sure their resources are uh, hanging in there with your your projects as well. So continuity is important. But that all goes into the building the trusted relationship. And that's a year-by-year thing. You know, in the beginning, it starts out as a week-by-week thing. But for most of the companies that, um, that were in our study, uh, they have long relationships with some of these providers. Right. And I think, I don't want to really jump, I'm sure there's going to be a question about this later, but... Uh, you know, people talk about the pitfalls of outsourcing and, oh, isn't there a high churn and things like that? And and the answer to that is no. I mean, well, there can be, but, uh, you know, what I'll 
what I always say is that if you hire someone and you treat them like cannon fodder and you pay them poorly and you give them crappy things to work on, well, you, your employees are going to quit. Well, and if you do that with an outsource team, if you say, well, good, I've got a bunch of bodies here. I'm going to give them all this grunt work and I'm going to pay them poorly. I'm going to expect them to be working, you know, answering my phone calls and my text messages whenever whenever I you know, feel like reaching out to them. Yeah, they're going to get tired and they're going to leave. On the other hand, you be, feed people interesting work. They make You make them part of your team. You respect their opinions. You let them know that they're valued. And by the way, you work with an organization that pays them fairly. They'll stay for years. We've had people on projects for well over five or six years. It's like there's, you. you I, think, I remember Watts Humphreys wrote a uh, an essay once about how you uh, de- developers don't quit. You drive them away. Once a developer is happy at your organization, they will suffer through a lot to stay with you. And mm-hmm. so, same thing is true for outsourcing. Outsourcing can be an incredibly stable workforce if you do it right. I, I want to make one other comment on this one before we move off, Sloan. Um, Y'all can just they, talk, and then I don't have to answer. I love <laughs> well, it. It's great. <laughs> no, I know we'll get, we've got a lot to cover here. But I think um, another little secret ingredient, a little magic formula, is having an opportunity for face-to-face. Mm, yeah. e- even if you're uh, working with somebody halfway across the planet, uh, getting one or two of their resources to come and embed with your team for a little while or – having the same happen the other direction to where people have met each other. Maybe they've had lunch or dinner together. Uh, they've had some socialization. It makes it a lot easier that when uh, you're working on the phone or through that video link, uh, when you have that relationship built. Yeah, Russ is absolutely right. People yeah. are empathetic to uh, all the challenges that are in front of them when, when they've been through that. Yeah, you, Go you got to do that. And, and Russ is absolutely right. There, there's We do that on almost every single project where we either bring most of the team over or all of the team over. And all of our um, managers and architects typically travel um, you know, once or twice a year to go see uh, the teams they work with because it's incredibly important to build that relationship. Again, you know, the whole thing is you don't want people to feel like cannon fodder. You want them to feel like a valued member of the team. And the best way to do that is to make them a valued member of the mm-hmm. team and respect their opinion and and let them know that you care about them and, and want to want to face-to-face with them. And so that's a huge part of it. And take time to develop the relationship, yes. the meaningful yes. part of the relationship. So you've answered a couple of my next questions. So I'm going to jump ahead here and basically say, to, how do you validate a candidate's firm background and credentials? You said video, you said, you know, kind of embed with the team. Are there some other things that you do to, to make sure that before you get to that point, they're who you want to work with and you validated them? Well, um, there are a couple things that we do. And I said before, we only work with organizations, um, for a couple of reasons. One is it's kind of easier to check on an organization's reputation than it is to check an individual's. I, I think I've told Russ this story, but I'll, I'll <laughs> bore you with it. But just because I think it's kind of illustrative, the uh, we one of the reasons we only work with um, uh, organizations, you just don't know who an individual is. And so one case we had a, um, a customer we were working for and they brought in uh, their own um, UI designer. And the guy was in Romania and he was good. He did good work and we liked him and that was fine. Um, until a week before the deliverable, we were making last minute changes and he suddenly disappeared. He just dropped off the grid. No one could reach him. And of course he's in Romania. So what are you going to do? You can't drive by his house. You can text him and call him and email him and, you know, fly over to, there and wander the right. streets. So, <laughs> who knows where the guy lives? He's just a name. And a, so um, at this point, it was just, um, before sort of ubiquitous video conferencing. So we hadn't even seen the guy. 
Uh, but anyway, so he dropped off and we finally, Calavista had to hire someone locally to kind of finish his work so we could get the thing out the door. And that was painful and costly for the customer. And again, it was, he was their guy. So it wasn't, you know, I, <laughs> there's only so much we can do. But anyway, a week after the project went live, he showed back up suddenly like, hey, sorry, you know, how, how are things going? And, never, you know, like, where, where the hell did you go? Um, well, <laughs> so the answer was, well, um, yeah, I, I was grounded. My mom took my computer away. And as it turns <laughs> out, as it turns out, the kid was in high school and, uh, you know, making good, good money for a high school kid. Uh, but the point is, you just don't know. Um, you know, and so we work with organizations because it means that, first of all, you know who they are. There's a recourse. You can go visit them. There's a recourse if they do something uh, wrong or they violate their, their breach, their agreement. It's much, much easier to hold an organization accountable for IP protection, uh, for instance, than, than it is to hold an individual. Um, you know, and an, an organization has much more to lose if they let people kind of play fast and loose. And so that really helps. So when you're, um, again, trying to figure out who the people are to work with, you have to trust the organization first. And you do that by you know, reputation. You do that by visiting. You do that by meeting with their architects and engineers and talking about, you know, are we in sync on how we deliver software? And then once you like the organization, then you start meeting the individuals and see okay, who would we work with and, you know, and, and just meet as many of them as you can and realize, yeah, this is kind of a kindred organization. And there are a lot of organizations that aren't, you know, you, and okay, they're, you know, they're not stupid or anything like that. But there's their methodologies and their, their work style is just not compatible with us. So I might just add a, another point on what just Lawrence just talked about and what we found as far as companies, uh, depending on the size and the sophistication of the company that was utilizing the resources. If it was a very small company, let's say it's a startup, and they have a very limited amount of money um, in their seed capital to build something, and they may uh, use some resources that are located in another country because the uh, their, their dollars are going to go so much further uh, to utilize those resources. And they may not have a legal entity in the U.S., so they're just doing something via email mm, yeah. in a foreign country and wiring money to them and getting code back, right? It's very difficult to enforce an agreement in that situation, but a small startup company may take the risk. Right. But a large firm, at least the ones that we were uh, working with on this study, they wouldn't do that. So there has to be a legal entity established in the U.S., and when they do their contract uh, between the outsourcing firm and the company, let's say it's a large automobile manufacturer, that legal agreement is going to be a U.S. entity to entity, U.S. entity to U.S. entity agreement with some kind of a jurisdictional definition, either in a certain state or county or, or whatever to yeah. resolve disputes. Right? Sure. And, th and that's one of the reasons actually customers use Calavista is because we are a you know, local U.S. company and in many cases local to them. But we have uh, resources all over the world via our, our partnership companies. But it gives them a local, you know, U.S.-based, um, you know, full weight of U.S. law on our shoulders, uh, throat to choke. And that works really well for a lot of companies rather than just finding one themselves offshore. Because, again, you know, if you're not going to go out there and visit them and spend time, well, it's a lot easier to do that with a U.S.-based company. Right. That kind of goes to my next question about certain steps which should be taken to protect internal IP. But it sounds like working with a legal entity, the U.S.-based legal entity to a U.S.-based legal entity at least helps alleviate some of that. What are some other things that you would put in place or have put in place to help protect uh, your internal intellectual property when you're outsourcing? Well, I think that um, the, the first thing, I, it's 
IP is really a hot button. And people will say often, like, well, the problem with outsourcing is it's hard to control your IP or how do you protect your IP? And I, I mean, I, I don't mean to be the doomsayer, but I have to say the fact that you hire your own employees doesn't mean your IP is protected. In, in, it is really easy. <laughs> Aren't those the biggest <laughs> breaches or right, internal exactly. ones? <laughs> right. I mean, it, is, it takes a keystroke to send your entire code base to someone who doesn't, whom you don't want to see it. And it doesn't. It can be done just as easily from a desk inside your office most of the time as it can be done, you know, from someplace Perhaps often. Perhaps even easier. In yeah. Right. So, so people delude themselves into thinking, oh, because it's all U.S.-based, my, my IP is somehow safe. It's all about the people you work with. If you have people who want to steal your IP and they have access to it, well, they can steal it. And so, again, it comes back to, you know, reputation and it comes back to having a lever over the and again, if you have one person in uh, I use Romania, but it, that's not not that Romania is a bad country or doesn't respect IP. But you have one person who's far away, um, and they do something they shouldn't do with your IP. What are you going to do? I mean, who who in Romania do you call to go try and put a stop to that? Well, if you're working with a uh, three thousand person company in Romania or Slovakia or you know wherever, wherever that that company is. Well, there is a much, much better chance that you can get them to um, to cure your problem. Uh, and so the first thing to do for IP protection is to realize that that the, the risk is not the fact that you're outsourcing. The risk is in the technology you're using to actually manage your, your code and your IP. Then it is work, <laughs> choosing who you work with carefully and investing the amount of time it's going to require to make sure you're working with people who are going to respect your IP. There, there are companies and countries that Calavistive will not work with because we have seen, not through our experience, but through other companies' experience, um, an inability to protect IP that in those um, cases. So um, basically, know who you're dealing with. Make sure that the com- entity is large enough that you can have a an impact on them in, and they'll care. And then um, <laughs> reputation. Agreed. I'm not, just a couple of additional points on that one. It's really important. So I work with um, a lot of defense contractors, aerospace firms. They're very sensitive about <laughs> I um, imagine. designs, and they're also sensitive about code, right? And in many ways, we're, we're solving this problem through all the cloud services that are coming up, especially the high reputation, you know, big cloud providers uh, that we all know and that we're somewhat uh, taking advantage of even more every year. But what I've seen at, at the companies that really have high sensitivity, sensitivity about this is not only the employee awareness that uh, Lawrence is talking about, but also having the products in place, the repositories in place that uh, have good access control, good audibility, mm-hmm. uh, making sure that uh, depending on how sensitive things are that only need to know mm-hmm. or need to see or need to touch, Right. And then when people are doing that, being able to trace through who was doing that or when did it happen. So that if a breach occurs or if you find your IP showing up somewhere else where it's not supposed to be, that you can actually build um, a trail back to determining how that occurred. And then you've got a better case to go get a resolution right. uh, through your whatever methods you Yeah, and that, and that really comes down to tools and process. Like at Calavista, when we work with a customer, we will internally provide them with their own IP subnet. And so, you know, I may be working uh, at Calavista, may be working on a project, um, and because I'm on that project, I am on this subnet. I can't get to work from other companies. I, I just, I can't. 
Um, and nor can any contractor from one project go see it. And when we do that, so there are also tools in place, but the point is we even take it down to the kind of the hardware level to try and make it so that we are really kind of aware of who has access to what uh, and when and make it you know really easy to turn people off when they leave the project. And it, it, it takes a little bit of discipline, uh, but that's <laughs> there's no substitute for that. Well, that actually answered one of my next questions, which was creating a common development platform for co-development, but you've answered that. So moving with that, so we're quite, quite ahead of the curve here. So moving right along, what um, are there certain, uh, any current security setups or audits which should be considered when you're outsourcing? You mentioned access control. You mentioned some other things. Are there any other best practices as perhaps part of that TIN that you mentioned that can help with security and, and really locking down that particular environment? Well, well, talking about system development kind of things, really the best practices are are going towards the outsourcer comes to you and you control the environment they're working in. That's really the -the state-of-the-art best practice. But you still see companies where they'll do a mirrored, um, like a mirroring of the source code and the mirroring of the system into their systems, but none of that reaches production without going through some kind of a quality check as it comes back. So I'd say that's the two probably most common that I see uh, these days. I don't see it uh, as much where they have full control uh, over the whole environment or where they have the uh, environment in their own country. It, it kind of depends on the company and the situation. But. Yeah, and, and there are you know numerous certifications you can try to get. This isn't really the, the place for all of that. But, yeah, we, we also do that exact thing where – uh, we basically provide a pipe. You know, a lot of stuff is done in the cloud nowadays, and so it's really easy to have people, you know, from around the world accessing a repository in the cloud. Um, well, what we'll do is actually um, set the cloud up so that it can only be accessed from Calavista, mm-hmm. uh, and then require everyone to tunnel through Calavista on their way. And that through way, a VPN, we, right? Through a VPN, and that way we know a who's doing it, and b when someone's not on the project, well, click their VPNs off, and they can't get to the repository anymore. We don't have to go around and you know say, oh, well, you know, there's. 18 servers in the cloud doing different things, and let's go to each one and change the access list so this person. To, you want to make make that as um, manageable as possible. Streamlined as possible. So kind of wrapping up here, is there um, anything that you would uh, suggest? You've mentioned some best practices, kind of one last parting thought about outsourcing and the value of it or things to be aware of when you're doing it. Well, one other one would be have a cadence of contact with your provider. So it could be a weekly meeting or a daily meeting. It depends on what, um, you know, what the project requires or what kind of uh, services they're providing. But I think a good touch point cadence. And I know some companies like to have uh, their resources out there in a messaging. Uh, It could be a Microsoft messaging tool or any of the messaging tools that are out there to where they actually see they're online or they're not online or or they're listening or they're not listening. So, so they have a better feel for, are the people that I don't actually see, are they really tuned in uh, to what we're doing? So a little bit of cadence. I also think video helps a lot. Uh, so oh, the tools that are out there today, there's so many, mm. right? <laughs> right? Starting with Skype and then going to all kinds of different uh tool sets and WebEx and Zoom and everything else. If you're able to do that, uh, it gives you more confidence. 
some cultures don't like to be as uh, blunt as Americans are, you know, in expressing opinions. They're doing it nonverbally through expressions, and it really helps uh, to be able to see the faces, especially in certain countries of the world where they're not agreeing. Right. They're not saying it, but they are definitely not agreeing. I can see it. Yeah, and and that that brings up a Russ is absolutely right. There is no no substitute for video conference. We we are really big on that. Uh, but not only just oh, there's a video conference because we've had this where. There's a in the in the conference room. There's a video camera, and so you see six people sitting around the table. That doesn't work. That that's not enough. You can't see the micro expression that that mm-hmm. <laughs> the the flutter of doubt that crosses someone's face when you <laughs> want them to do. You you miss it because you just see this room of people who are kind of staring at at off at some point in the distance, which is the camera. You've got to be able to see their faces, and it's got to be clear. So that's basically HD um, and a, a camera, you know, webcam or whatever that's focused on their face. And so whatever technology you use. From our point of view, Calvis's point of view, that's what it has to be. Otherwise, you're just kind of, you know, checking the block and not actually getting much out of it. Well, I was just going to add, uh, also being a little bit balanced in uh, time zones. So it doesn't always have to be in your time zone and they're working in the middle of the night. Mm. I mean, occasionally go ahead and stay late and that way they're working during their business day. So a little bit of those trade-offs helps a lot in morale yeah, on and, both sides. And that's sort of the, the whole treating them like fodder thing. If, if you, you know, they've got lives and you want to respect their lives and you want them to be happy to come to work and not see it as a death march. Yeah. But I will say, you know, the <laughs> I have a blog um, about like the top 10 ways to you know, make your outsourcing project fail. And the, um, but Which the number- we're working on and we'll get out. Calavista.com. Yeah, we'll have to post that as well. Um, but, you know, the, 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 number, the, the first way on the, on the list is to not start. And uh, I find that a lot of people treat outsourcing as, you know, it's kind of when you are, you hire the cleaning company or you want to hire a cleaning company for your house, but first you have to clean your house because, like, you, you know, you've got to kind of get things under control before you can hire something. And really what you should do is hire someone to come in and get your house under control. So people will say to us all the time, oh, I really want to outsource this project, but we're not ready. We need to, like, kind of get all of our ducks in a row. And what they don't realize is that there are companies, and, you know, of course, Calavis is one of them, but we're certainly not the only one. There are companies that can help you get your ducks in a row. And so, for instance, if you need to put down the on paper the requirements for this project, well, Again, there are people who do that for a living. That is what they do is they do software requirements. And there are companies that you – know, software development companies or even just companies that just do requirements that can do that for you. So if you can find a company that can provide you sort of the turnkey service of we will show up, become part of your team and help you get those requirements on paper and then help you put together a strategy for how to deploy them and how much of that, if any, you want to outsource and then what that's going to look like, you can actually get a lot farther than you'll think Um without being as ready as you would think you have to be. Um, so I, I think what I'm trying to say is you actually, you know, for those of you out there who are thinking, oh, you know, I, I, yeah, outsourcing sounds great, but we're not in a place to do that. You might be. Um, you just need to pick the right partner uh, who can help you get from where you are to where you want to be. So. so as far as more information, Russ, I know you mentioned you have this wonderful document you're using to talk about the research. That can be found at I'll tell you what, I'll put a link out there on Twitter at rfinney, at r. F-I-N-N-E-Y. I'll put a link to the report that I'm referencing. And it's about 16 pages or so. And it's full of best practices around what Lawrence and I are talking about. And this is mainly uh, discovered from these 500 companies, just what they 
what their insights were on on doing this stuff. And we'll so. also post a link on the Calavista blog. That's www.calavista.com. And you can also follow Calavista on Twitter at Calavista. So thank you all for listening and look forward to uh, having you tune in the next time for Calavista Conversations. Thank you, Russ. Thank you, Lawrence. Thanks. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Calavista Software. We write cost-effective quality code for other people, delivering on time and on budget over 90% of the time. That's all we do, and we've been doing it for over 15 years. If you have software needs, we'd love to talk with you. Be sure to follow us at, at Calavista on Twitter, or check out our website at calavista.com. That's C-A-L-A-Vista.com. Software development without the drama. Thank you for listening.